Today's episode with Andy Constant was absolutely one of the greatest explainers on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet that I've ever heard. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. And make sure you stay to the end to get Andy's forecast going into 2024. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin-only exchange. They do not keep your Bitcoin on a third-party storage solution. They have their own method of storing Bitcoin. They also recommend that you get your Bitcoin into cold storage. Once it's purchased, they allow you to use Lightning Network. And there's these great features, including a recurring purchase on the hour. You can send Bitcoin to your friends and family now via text message. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today, we welcome back Andy Constan of Damped Spring. Andy, thank you so much for joining us once again. Hey, Nick, it's a pleasure. So Andy has been with us two times before. This is his third appearance here at the Bitcoin layer, but we don't talk about Bitcoin with Andy in any way, shape or form because he is a very experienced investor in fixed income. So we really enjoy having him on and getting his perspective on the fixed income markets, on the Fed and the Treasury as well. Some of the some of the ongoings right now in macro. So Andy, let's start with the Fed's balance sheet. So much going on around the decline in RRP. That's the reverse repo facility. That is an excess liquidity bucket, as well as a slight increase in reserves. So a net decrease in the Fed's balance sheet. Talk to us, Andy, about the Fed's balance sheet. Each one of these components reserves RRP and how you think they affect what is going on in the rest of assets? Yeah, sure. So, so the, let's talk about the things in, on the Fed's balance sheet that matter. There are a bunch of things that matter less for this conversation that are relatively stable. And then there are a couple of things that may matter in the future. So let's just sort of go through that. Let's start with the asset side. Every balance sheet has assets and liabilities. And on the asset side, there really are four things that are important. Um, one is their SOMA portfolio, and that is the um, securities they bought in the open market um, during uh, QE. Um, and uh, those consist of treasuries and um, mortgages. And the next layer down, well, that's the biggest by far. The next layer down is um, currently doesn't have to always be this way, but currently um, the one that matters is the BTFP program. And the BTFP program was instituted during the, um, the banking crisis we had in March, in which four banks went under and a number of other banks were, um, you know, vulnerable to going under, primarily due to their large investment in low interest at the time, Low in well, at the time we're talking about 2020 to 2022, low interest rate, long-term bonds, and because those bonds fell in price, that uh, caused these banks to, uh, well, it caused depositors to wonder if their money was safe, and depositors fled, and then there was the actual possibility that the the money was not safe, in that the 
equity of if the if the bank had to liquidate the um, the um, depositors might not get be able to be made whole. So four banks were liquidated through the FDIC mechanism, and um, the rest of the banks were provided a backstop program, and that backstop program is called the uh, bond. Uh, term financing program. And what that program is, is literally the, um, the, the bank lends their um, treasuries that, or mortgages that they have as collateral to the uh, Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve says, okay, now we have a loan on our balance sheet. We're going to, lo- sorry, we have collateral on our balance sheet. We're going to loan cash against that collateral. Um, and that loan is what actually the BTFP asset is. And what happens on the right side of the Fed's balance sheet is they credit reserves to these banks that needed this emergency funding. And so that rests around $125 billion, um, small relative to just about anything in the SOMA portfolio, but relevant because the maturity of those obligations is coming up soon. Uh, and then there are two other things that are worth mentioning. Um, back before the BTFP program, the Federal Reserve uh, had other program, uh, you know, had their traditional mechanism for providing liquidity to uh, banks, and that was called the discount window. And it, the mechanism is very similar. They, the the Fed advances reserves to the bank, and the um, bank provides collateral for the loan, and that's what happens. And then the last thing is a program that got used extensively in 2019 during the repo crisis. Um, And it's the not the reverse repo program, which is a liability of the Fed, but a the repo program. And in the repo program, perfectly healthy banks can get cash financing by pledging treasury bills, bonds, et cetera, on the Fed's balance sheet. It's only open for banks. Um, But that's another balance sheet item. And so that's what's the asset side. The liability side, there are three relevant things that matter. Uh, The first is the RRP, which you mentioned has been coming down uh, rapidly from $2.2 trillion ahead of the uh, debt ceiling resolution in June to, uh, I think it's like $680 billion right now. So rapidly falling. Um, and what that is, is uh, the opposite of a repo, the opposite of a discount window borrowing, the opposite of a BTFP borrowing. In this case, the Fed is lent money and they pledge collateral to the lender. And so you have to understand who that lender is. Now, banks could participate in the BTFP, uh, the RRP program, but they largely don't, and I can get to that in a moment. The people that participate in that are money market mutual fund investors, and more relevantly, the portfolio managers that manage money market funds. They make the choice to invest in the RRP as a form of very safe, overnight, um, interest-bearing cash. And so that's a liability on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, The next liability on the Fed's balance sheet is the deposit, the checking account that the the U.S. government uses. 
Um, and so when the U.S. government collects taxes or issues a bond or um, they, uh, their checking account grows because people deposit it, that deposit isn't at Chase. Though back in the day, it used to be at banks, like real banks, not the Fed. You know, our taxes would go into a regular old bank. But now the only account the government has for its finances is the um, is the Treasury General account on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And so when we get taxes, that money goes into the TGA. When we when the when government bonds are issued, bills are issued, that money goes into the TGA. And when the government spends, hands money to a defense contractor or a social security benefits recipient or any form of spending or tax rebate for that matter, um, the TGA falls. Lastly, the TGA changes based on um, when our, the national debt matures, bills mature, the, Fed, the TGA falls. And so that's the mechanism for that thing. And then lastly is the thing that has always mattered in, in financial markets since the get-go. Before, before there was SOMA, before there was RRP, before there was, well, there was TGA still. Um, but again, it was, anyway. Um, the, what matters is what are called bank reserves. And bank reserves used to matter a lot because um, a bank reserve is something that the was deemed necessary by something called fractional banking in which if you so a bank reserve is an asset of a private bank of a private sector bank it was deemed and this is sort of goes back to you know the seasonal movie it's a wonderful life that you sort of have to have some form of cash not physical bills reserves are the equivalent of physical bills some sort of cash in your bank account sorry, in your corporation, in your bank, so that you could provide people with their cash when they wanted to withdraw or when they wanted to transfer it to another bank or if they wanted to pay off their mortgage or if at, in, at another bank or any form of change. So you need that money because you never knew how much you'd need at any one point in time. And so this was sort of a way of protecting banks from runs. And the important thing is, uh, banks would lever that. Um, and so, for instance, if you had $1 of reserves, you could have $9 or $10 of loans, making your balance sheet levered. Now, that went away in 2020. And so there is no need to have any bank reserves whatsoever in the system. There's no need for a bank to lever. They, they can lever or delever based on business opportunities and other regulations. Um, and for now, the, RR, the, uh, the uh, bank reserves are basically a fairly useless thing. There are plenty of them. And where they become useful is when somebody big wants to spend money, a big corporation or a set of small corporations, but usually a big transfer of money is going to happen between Chase Manhattan or J.P. Morgan Chase and Citibank, for instance. And the way that actually happens is they swap reserves. And so the grease that allows interbank transactions where some end user has a deposit at Citi and another end user has a deposit at Chase, at JP, JP Morgan, reserves are required to 
facilitate that transaction. So there is a necessary reserve. It's more of an accounting reserve. And back in the day, um, the, the Fed actually set monetary policy by um, the Fed funds is literally the rate that the um, government would and the market would provide the market actually would provide lending some entity reserves who needs them or borrowing some reserves for somebody who needs reserves. Um, and that set the Fed funds rate. Um, now, that rate is hardly used. So while it is the rate they quote, the important rate is the uh, what's called the SOFA rate. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because it will be the important point when you come to back to do all these changes matter to the economy. Anyway, that's the composition of the balance sheet and what exists. Oh, it's a fantastic breakdown, and we're definitely going to provide the viewer with some graphics to show the size of SOMA, which is the Fed's treasury and mortgage-backed security holdings. It's their open market account. We're going to show the size of that relative to some of these other asset line items, including the March regional crisis uh, bailout facility called BTFP. Uh, the discount window lending, as well as the standing repo facility, which right now isn't used that much. We're also going to show the viewer the liability side and relative comparisons of the size of the reserve balance right now that Andy is talking about versus the reverse repo facility, which is declining, and uh, the Treasury general account, which is, of course not that big relative to the other, um, or let's say to the reserve line item, but still can have an impact on the economy. So yeah. Andy, let's get into reserves. You bring up this great image of one end user transacting with another, Chase sending money to City, And in that way, the physical reserves in the system are required at that time. So what is it about reserve constraint? Talk about this ample reserves framework that the Fed has. Where, where is reserve constraint? We'll get into RRP and maybe what will happen when RRP hits zero, or maybe you could even start there. What is the constraint? When does QT start to impact? And then, but QT relative to the RRP line item and the reserves line item. Sure. I mean, it's a complicated thing. Let's start with the reserves item. Um, so because the regulation has changed and we no longer are in, they call it an ample reserve regime that we're in now, that's not even true. We have, um, there is no reserve requirement. So I don't know what ample really means when you don't have any reserve requirement at all. So how do banks get regulated? What's important when for the depositor, for the FDIC who insures the depositor, for the shareholders, for the debt holders, for everybody who owns a either a, an account at a bank or a, a security for, that a bank issues? Well, what's important is the risk they have. And so the thing about fractional reserves was that it was a regulatory regime which allowed uh, that didn't distinguish between a bank that would be offering um, 
you know, really bad loans to the worst possible borrower at 10x leverage versus a bank that would be buying, um, you know, the highest quality government guaranteed mortgages um, with leverage. And so if you think about the shareholder of those two things, one would expect a lower valuation on this much, much riskier venture. Now, that isn't to say that it's not a, a good business, but it's not a regulatory useful tool. So for years now, um, it's Basel 1, 2, and 3 has been moving the world to one in which what matters is stress tests and can the, you know, can the assets of the balance sheet of a bank withstand market price shifts such that the various stakeholders from depositors to shareholders are safe. And it was deemed it was deemed reserves not being useful for that thing. And so they've been basically eliminated. But there has to be some because that those transactions I talked about happen every single day. That every single day every bank in the world sees what it's reserve sees what it needs to send to all the other banks in the world in terms of their the reserves because a transaction happens such that they have to transfer money from one of their clients accounts to another account at another bank it, we do it all we all do it all day long and so you have to see what the net of those two things is for every bank across all their potential banking in, in interactions and then you have to total it up and then you have to make sure it all goes in the right place and then net you have to make sure that you had enough for the day versus not enough so it's an important grease but it's no longer the thing that invest that banks use to determine whether they should be um, changing the composition of their balance sheet, taking on more leverage, taking on riskier or loans, get taking reducing the risk of their loan book, reducing the risk of their um, securities holdings. That's all using more classic risk control tools than this ample regime thing. So anyway, they have to exist, and they do exist. So how do you set the right amount of that? Well, the Fed's told us what they do. They believe that the amount of reserves necessary for the smooth working from day to day to week to week, over year ends, over quarters, is about 11% of GDP. Now, it's actually run at 10, but and it's run below that. It's run at 7 or 8 in the past, and that's when um, reserves were um, dear, particularly during the financial crisis. But they have that target, and that's a number like $2.5 trillion because the U.S. GDP is around $25 trillion. Current reserves are around $3.5 trillion. Actually, let me just check where they They're are around today. around 3.5, yeah, 3.4. Yeah, so, yeah, 3, 4, 5. 3.45 billion. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, 3.54. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. So three and a half billion uh, trillion, and the target is two and a half trillion. So there is a long way to go with reserves, and in terms of getting reserves down, and uh, the Fed also thinks that RRP is essentially reserves. It's essentially 
people who, if the RRP ceased to exist, would have their money in a bank deposit or would have their money in T-bills. And if they had their money in T-bills, the T-bill money that was used, the financing that the government did, would create a deposit in the, in the financial system. So one way or the other, it's just like deposits. It's just like reserves. And that's the Fed's framework. And they look at their balance sheet and say, well, you know, what's the difference between RRP um, and, um, and bank reserves? And they think nothing much. So their target is uh, to get the combination of those things, which we know is around 4.2 trillion, down 1.7 trillion. Uh, so then the question is, how do they do that? Yes, and the the way that they're going to do that, of course, is by letting their holdings mature and not replenish them. Uh, that's what QT is. So if if QT continues on its current pace, that means we won't actually hit this theoretical reserve constraint because, as you say, it um, it's not a physical constraint itself. It's more theoretical right. in nature that we have several months or maybe even over a year left of QT from that perspective. So how do you how do you marry that with what you actually think will happen? So let's let's talk about that projection. I think that projection is is not quite right. Um, so 1.7 trillion, let's use that as the number they have to reduce um, reserves plus RRP by. How do they how do reserves come and RRP come out of the system? Well, let's go back to the balance sheet. Um, so we talked about the SOMA portfolio, which is one relevant part of the balance sheet, the assets. And we talked about three liability parts. Let's ignore the BTFP for the moment. Three liabilities. So if you take accounting, you know that the only way to make reserves go down is either TGA has to go up or RRP has to go up. That's on the liability side. Or the asset has to go down. So asset down, liability down, or one liability down, the other liability up. And that's it. That's accounting. It's the only way it'll work. So what it says is that the um, change in the RRP, the change in the um, Feds, the um, the reserves plus RRP has to be driven by something other than those things. And so the two possibilities that can drain the combination, we'll get to the, we'll get to which one's moving of the two. But if you focus on how do we get to one point seven trillion less of the com of the sum of the RRP plus the the um, bank reserves, only two things can move. Either the TGA can go up and those other two liabilities, the sum of those other two liabilities go down, or the SOMA portfolio can go down. Those are the only ways that things can happen. So now let's look at the TGA. So on uh, June 7th, the TGA hit its smallest. It was right before the debt ceiling resolution um, or kicking the can down the road to 2025 was what I would probably better call it, but call it a resolution. Um, and it's grown by $650 billion roughly. So what happens when the TGA grows by $650 billion? Well, we know the SOMA portfolio is going down, so the SOMA portfolio didn't go up. So we'll get to the SOMA portfolio in a moment. But 
650 up means reserves plus um, RRP has to go down by 650 billion. And it did. So what about the SOMA? What, what about going forward for the TGA? You know, what's the projection for the TGA? Well, currently the target is 750 billion and uh, it's, I don't know, 650 billion. I don't, I don't remember what this week's data is. It's around there. And it swings a lot because the TGA, as I said, is your checking account. If anyone set a checking account, you know, you don't time the inflows and outflows perfectly. The balance sheet, you know, it moves around every single day, literally every single day. <coughs> so it's moving, but its target is 750 billion. So why? Why is it 750 billion? That's probably the most important thing you can take from this is why is the TGA the size it is? And the answer is that the Treasury has a very specific rule. And it comes from um, disaster recovery after September 11th. Um, and that rule said that, listen, we don't know if we're going to have another market disruption event where we're no longer able to issue any securities for a week. Let's use a week. And now we say, okay, we're not going to be able to issue any securities. What are our flows? What are our outflows going to be? We can't, we can't raise money. Taxes are going to be what they're going to be. And I don't know the details whether taxes are still assumed to come in, but I think they are. Anyway, that's not important. The big thing is if they have a big chunk of money that's do, that needs to be paid over the next week, which includes T-bills maturing and any expenditures they need to make, and the market has had a market disruption event and closed the issuance market, the Treasury would be SOL. And they need to prepare for that eventuality. And so the minimum that the every single day the guys at Treasury look a week forward and say, okay, what are, how much money are we going to need next week? And they make sure the TGA is big enough to pay those bills without funding. And they do it. Project they project it, but you know you never know what next week will bring, right? Because next week you might have gotten a big tax inflow that you weren't expecting, or maybe you didn't get enough taxes that week, and so every week they recalculate that. And good people out there can you know roughly come up with a number, and the basic number is seven hundred fifty billion. So that's their target, and that's what they keep it at. Um, so is it going to grow? Well, it could. Is it going to, can they spend the TGA? And this is a lot of conspiracy theory stuff, which is good for us right now, which is can Janet Yellen just spend the TGA, flooding the market with the, the, the spending she was already going to do, but not issuing any securities to sop up the liquidity? That's what happened the first half of this year. She spent the TGA from $750 billion down to $40 billion and didn't have to issue any securities to sop up that liquidity. And so lots of liquid assets, lots of assets that depend that are, you know, benefit from lack of issuance rallied the whole first half of the year. Now that she's been building the TGA and now that it's back all the way to its, its minimum level, um, the question is, can she do it again? And the answer is, the only reason why she's ever done it before or any other treasurer has done it, treasury secretary has done it before prior to since September 11th 
is when the government was going to be shut down. That, that hey, we, gotta, we, we can't issue because we're at a debt ceiling, but we got to pay our bills, so we can't issue. It's just like a market disruption event, but we can't issue. But we got to pay our bills, so we got to spend the TGA down. And they've done it many times, 2011, 2013, 2015, and certainly this year. And so that's a that's an overarching thing that forces them to, TG, to, to spend the TGA. Unless that occurs, and there's no chance it will before the election because they've kicked the budget out to 2025 before the debt ceiling would be reinvoked, she can't do it. So that conspiracy theory is just garbage. She can't spend the TGA down. Now, good news is maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Andy's crazy and he's wrong. Well, on, July, on January 31st, she'll tell us the TGA target. On, January, on, on May 1st, she'll tell us the TGA target. And we can see if she has plans to spend the TGA down. But she has to tell us. And so, you know, that's something to pay attention to, but I wouldn't bet on her spending the TGA down. So that's how the TGA works. And basically what I'm getting at is the TGA has been built, which has caused the other part of the liabilities, RRP plus reserves, to fall by $650 billion, but it can't build anymore. It's not going to build anymore. There's no need to build it. So the decline in RRP is no longer being fueled by an increase in the TGA. Okay, now let's get to the SOMA portfolio. The SOMA portfolio is, um, we know exactly what it is. It's the government, the Fed demands its money back on $60 billion of US obligations um, and has roughly, they have a cap of 35 billion of mortgages, but it really only runs at around 20 billion of mortgages. You basically add it together. The Federal Reserve wants its balance, not only wants, make sure its balance sheet shrinks by 60 billion of government, government obligations, and then lets between 15 and 20 billion of mortgages run off. And so that means that every, every month, they're, the SOMA portfolio is falling by $75 billion. Now, we talked about the TGA. It's stable. If the assets fall by $75 billion, that has to come from the combination of the RRP plus the um, um, bank reserves. So what's my forecast for the sell? The, that, by the way, that's the only way that bank reserves can fall unless... Whoops, sorry. Unless a private sector um, bank, and this is a small thing, unless a private sector bank delevers, but I'm not going to go into that because it's we'll lose our focus, and it's not the big thing that matters. But basically, 75 billion roughly a month for 12 months is uh, 720, seven, three quarters of 12 is 900 billion dollars. So $900 billion is what's going to be the run, the annual run rate of the combination of RRP plus TGA. Sorry, RRP plus bank reserves. And what was our target? $1.7 How long does that take? Two years. 
23, 23 months. And so that's when we're, we reach target that the Fed has for QT. And so that's anything else is just garbage. Now, when I say garbage, Sure, the, there is going to be an interesting dy dynamic when the RRP portion of that sum drops to zero, and we'll, we, I'm sure we can cover that. But what's garbage is that's not what their goal is. Their goal is for that combination. And so we can deal with the friction that may exist when the RRP goes to zero in a moment, but it's a friction, not a constraint. And a lot of people think of it as a constraint. Okay, so um, let's let's go into the friction. So RRP might hit zero mid mid year Q two something around that. Um, yeah, I mean, if you take the seventy five billion I just mentioned and you divide it into six hundred and eighty billion, you get a number like you know three quarters of a year. Okay, so describe the friction then at that point. Now RRP is down to zero. The only place that the decline can come from is reserves. But as Andy has explained to us really uh, interestingly and fascinating is how we don't have a reserve requirement anymore from a regulatory perspective. The decline in reserves themselves don't constrain bank activity by themselves because bank risk taking is done through other me and measured through other metrics. Okay, so what what is or the or the increase in bank reserves doesn't stimulate activity. Cor it just doesn't have any impact. Correct. So reserves right now are creeping up, have been for for a few months while this uh, background is going on with the increase in TGA decline in RRP. But anyway, let's get back to the question: the the friction point mid next year, let's just say when RRP hits zero. Now it translates to a decline in reserves. So what is the friction at that point? What happens? Right. right. So I think what we need to do to that is say, why does we've, we've, we've acknowledged that the pressure on the combination of RRP plus um, bank reserves, the pressure on that to fall comes from two sources, TGA build, which isn't happening anymore and 90 billion of SOMA portfolio runoff, which is happening until it doesn't. Now, let's deal, deal with the why RRP is falling versus, and why reserves are rising, because that, that will help us with our projection and help us understand what's going on. And so the answer to that is market forces. So. Market forces are the following. Um, money market mutual funds have three places that they can invest money. So why does a money market mutual fund have money? Well, a money market mutual fund is just like a bank deposit. People who want safe cash savings, um, which includes, by the way, major U.S. corporations, um, wholesale deposits that come from um, um, just simply the need to have working capital for medium, small, medium, and large private businesses. Um, all of these, and then mom and pop who have you know their 
checking account or their money market account, which they sweep their checking account into so that they get better interest. So that's where the money came from. But the money's not changing. You know, it's like when we talk about bank reserves falling or RRP falling, that's not, nobody's taking any, any of our money. Like our depositors still have all their money. Like they didn't have their money taken. All that happened is that the depositors, the investors in a money market mutual fund, um, have um, different things they can buy than they used to. And so that's the market forces thing I'm talking about. So what are the market forces? So a money market mutual fund portfolio has three investments. It can traditionally, before the RRP ever existed, um, and after the government, I think they're called, three C five accounts. Two anyway, A two A seven, I think is the uh two A seven, thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. In your moment. Um two A seven accounts were created, you know, there were certain restrictions so that they could um, you know, not have a break the buck problem like they did in the Lehman crisis. And pretty much that dominates now the money market mutual fund complex. Um and so they have two places they can invest. They can invest in bills. Treasury bills less than 364 days long. Um, treasuries less than 364 days. They could technically buy old, old bonds. Um, or they can participate in the private sector reverse repo, progr uh, repo program in which they give their cash to somebody who wants to buy a bond. And the buyer of the bond, a levered buyer of the bond, borrows that cash and pledges the bond as collateral to the money market mutual fund. And that's called private sector repo. And so they can invest in that and do. There's the private sector repo market has exploded um, over the last couple of years as well, because there's so much cash in the system looking for safe returns that um, private sector repo has been huge. As well, and this is where we come to the market forces, um, Janet Yellen has decided to finance a lot of the growth in the TGA in particular using treasury bills. And so all of a sudden there's a very large supply of treasury bills that hadn't existed um, in the early part of this year and now is coming at, God, I think they did 800 billion in Q3 and 520 billion in Q4, plenty of bills. And so now you're sitting in the money market mutual funds, um, investors, portfolio managers seat, and you see the various rates you have. And one of the rates is overnight private sector repo. Okay, got it. That's call it 536. I don't know what it is, but call it that. Then you've got the RRP, which is overnight, one-day money, at 533. Not quite as good as the private sector repo, but maybe the private sector repo is a little bit more hairy for you, and so you put some in the RRP. Give up a few basis points. And by the way, that flips all the time, constantly moving, but pretty tight because both of them are the same transaction. But then you got the bills market. And the bills market, you know, reflects the future path of interest rates. And so you look, the, the money market mutual funds are the experts at saying, 
what do I want to buy? Do I want to buy overnight money at 532, one one week money, two week money, four week money, eight week money, 12 week money, all the way out to 364 day money. And so to the extent that those yields are higher than they were, the pressure for the money market mutual fund is to redeem its investment in the RRP. So the RRP falls and invest in new T-bills the government sells because they have a higher market interest rate. Okay. Now, why does the bank reserves change in that case? We, I told you that the RRP going down, absent SOMA, which is part of this, but absent SOMA going down, the RRP, RRP has been going down anyway, and the bank reserves have been going up. And so the reason that happens is when the money market mutual fund portfolio manager decides to take one month bills because they have a more attractive interest rate than overnight. And when I say more attractive, I don't mean higher. I just mean more attractive because the path of interest rates is built into that, are they more attractive or not? And they look at it and say, okay, I'm going to buy a bill. And so what happens? The government all of a sudden gets a, um, a bill, uh, issues a bill, and the reverse repo balance sheet item on the Fed's balance sheet goes down. Something has to go up. And the thing that goes up is the TGA because the government has just issued a security. And so now they have money in the bank. Then the TGA is spent in the real economy. It's handed to a defense contractor or a social security beneficiary or just whatever the spending is spent on interest. And all of that money is placed as a deposit in some person's account. And the way that deposit is funded is the, the Fed reduces the TGA and increases the bank reserve. So that's what happens. So absent the fact that both of them have to come down because of the um, SOMA portfolio, QT, they shift based on the interest rate available in the bills market and its preference relative to overnight repo. And so recently, because the Fed was higher for longer, the bills market, and because Janet was flooding the market with bills, longer term bills were thought to be, you know, longer than overnight, were thought to be more attractive than overnight money. Meaning if you held a one month bill, versus holding one month, holding the RRP for an entire month, you'd do better on the one month bills, most likely. Well, and so that's what happened. So the RRP went down faster than the sum was going down, right? Because I told you, TGA and um, QT are causing the sum to go down, but RRP fell faster and, you know, and basically reserves didn't fall. Because, and that's the net of those things. So what happens now? Well, if you look at the bills market today, 
um, and the SOFR curve is the best curve to look at, you can see that one year bills, one year SOFR, are yielding, assuming the Fed is going to cut 160 basis points in the next year, in 2024. So now you're sitting there as a money market fund and saying, hmm, well, it used to be I could get 100 basis points of cuts priced into my T-bill, and that was attractive to me, and so I'm going to redeem some of my RRP and buy bills, and then that whole flow works. Now, that's 60 basis points worse to buy a one-year bill than it used to be. Is that still attractive to me? Is any point at what part of the curve, where are the bargains in bills relative to RRP? And so you have to see that and you have to see, have the market forces now made RRP the best investment a money market mutual fund can hold versus what had been the worst. And that's the market forces I'm talking about. And I think it's pretty interesting that you're seeing a lot of people just do the math I did with you and assume it comes out at the trajectory it has been coming out, even though the TGA is not growing anymore. Because the market forces have shifted a lot, that also would have an impact on the preference of, of RRP versus bills, and then hence into the, um, the, um, the bank reserves. So we'll see, but I would say that it's definitely changed, that the bills overnight financing rate has changed. And I don't know what the money market, these are literally traders who trade this for a living and just, you know, flick a switch on whether they want to own bills or RRP based on what they think is the best outcome. And they're trading it. And, you know, maybe, maybe the market's ahead of the Fed now to such a level that the RRP guys are going to, the money market mutual fund guys are going to say, I'll stick it out in RRP. And then RRP could grow instead of fall. And the, and the reason potentially that RRP would grow in that scenario is like Andy was explaining, it's about relative value, relative attractiveness. And if you see bill yields very, very inverted to where the RRP rate is, the relative attractiveness of buying that bill declines. And you might just prefer to keep your money in that overnight facility. And Andy, just so you no, my background, I do come from a 2A7 seat. That is my background. And I huh. wasn't at a money market fund that had access to RRP because that is reserved for the Bank of New York Mellons of the world, State Street, et cetera. And there are a number of funds that are that do qualify and have that direct line. We We were below that tier, but it is my background and making that judgment on the money market curve of do I keep it overnight in private repo? Do I go out into one month bills? Do I go to the six to 12 month part of the curve because of that relative attractiveness? It is my background. And that's what we try to, yeah, it's what we try to provide people at the Bitcoin layer. Cause you know, we have a Bitcoin focus in our overall approach to investment, but it doesn't hide the fact that we come from the money market a breed and this is 
what we do is we're looking at the SOFR curve. When I was trading, it was more the Euro dollar curve that has, that has uh, evolved over time as well. But yeah, I just wanted to share that with you because when we're doing this analysis and I'm asking these questions, I'm learning a lot from you today. And it, it's that, it's that two a seven mind of mine that's going to work here and really trying to Nick, as a question, you know, the RRP and the, you know, so I get it. You didn't have access to the RRP, but the RRP and the private sector repo are, you know, except for the practical issues. Now that you have tri tri-party repo, it seems modest. Those curves are still both overnight. So aren't you just comparing to, I mean, aren't you doing what I said? Basically just, you didn't have one of the two identical things that are sure RRP. you are. And the, and the, decision that we had was slightly different. As you know, as a, as an investment manager with a mandate, you have your fiduciary duty to your clients. And so one of those duties was when we are allocating repo cash to, let's say, um, Merrill or City or Goldman, some of the banks that we had lines with, you have a percentage cap and it's not like you're right. just putting it and you could put 25% of your fund at RRP and sleep at night, but you can't put 25% of your client's holdings in a bilateral or even if it's tri-party with Merrill, because it's huh. not in the guidelines that you're allowed to do that. You have a 5% cap with Merrill and it includes owning Merrill's commercial paper, CDs, the long-term paper that you have in that portfolio. And so you look at your corporate holdings, you're already at 3% in terms of your Bank of America, Merrill Lynch credit holdings. So then you're, when you're you know, exercising the repo with Merrill's desk, you only have 2% available of the fund yeah. and you don't have five lines open with every bank. You only have one or two because- so What does that do? That pushes you into securities. It pushes you into securities. It pushes you into bills. It pushes you into commercial paper discount notes, whatever you can find that has a, if you look at the, if you look at the participants in the RRP by, you know, by size, you know, their allocation to the RRP is, is, is enormous. They, they clearly have no cap to what they have to do um, with the RRP, but I imagine you're right. Even, even the enormous funds have, uh, have counterparty caps. Um, and also now that we know this, you know, two, a seven funds also have um, liquidity buffers like you have to have a certain amount of money in overnight money and a certain amount of money in i think it's seven days yeah, but whatever it is um you know there's liquidity caps just to make sure that you can pay off in and this is why it's like a bank reserve you can pay off um what is needed in the event somebody runs your money market mutual fund um so anyway i think those are the dynamics here and there are market forces that may cause RRP to stay above zero. And for that matter. So now the question is, what if it doesn't? So what if it doesn't? So if the, remember the money market mutual fund isn't losing any money, isn't losing any assets under management, it's just changing its asset allocation. So let's say they change it so that RRP ultimately is zero. And uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that, um, they, uh, the next QT increase, the next QT demand on 
bank is going to have to come from bank reserves. So what does that mean? That means bank reserve bank reserves are going to go down, which is going to be because a deposit instead of a money market mutual fund asset, a deposit is going to have to be spent on T bills, T notes, T bonds, whatever is issued by the government to pay back the Fed. And so that's when you'll start seeing the hit to reserves. Okay. Now the question is, um, as that happens, what happens to, so right now, no government bond is being financed by the RRP. When the RRP goes down, the money market mutual fund either is going to be buying bills or using or providing leverage to potential bondholders. Um, but now they're full up. They have, as, they have the bills they need. They have the, the private sector repo they need, and they're out of money, and the government is issuing. And so the, the friction that most people are, should be rightly concerned about is if the bills and bonds that are being issued by the government are, need to be purchased by leverage, it's important that ample repo is available. Additional repo is available. And so where's that going to come from? Well, the first place it can come from is sort of circular. The money market mutual fund can divest of bills and provide repo in coupons. And if the government is issuing less bills, and more coupons, that flow may exist. Um, now, if they continue to issue bills, I think it's an interesting dynamic that if they continue to issue bills, um, that the bills market will be rich to be cheap to the, the, the sofa market. And who's going to buy that? Certainly not many people are going to buy it on leverage. So it'll be interesting to see if she keeps pushing out bills. My guess is she won't. Um, and so the big issue is on the coupons. Who will be the source of repo if we've just concluded that the money market fund has already moved its asset allocation and has no more asset allocation that can go to bills or private sector repo because they're full up on that? So they're full up. Now they can, as I said, they can shift out of bills into repo, and that can provide more coupon bond leverage. But that's really the only source unless banks themselves decide to buy duration and create money out of thin air to do it. And that is possible. But what's more likely is, you know, if we do have a lack of supply of repo funding for levered buyers of treasuries. That's what the standing repo mark, um, um, program on the asset side of the balance sheet is set up for. It has huge depth to provide repo financing for treasury leveraging. And so that's why I think that the whole idea of the friction is, is, it may exist as these things get sorted out, 
But ultimately, if there is demand for investors, if, if treasuries trade cheap enough so that there's demand for investors to lever up a treasury purchase, there's plenty of financing available for them, both privately and through this facility. And so I don't see the I don't see the, the crisis of the RRP going to zero, and I'm not sure it will, unless bills continue to be trade extremely cheap to SOFR. It's, it's been a really fascinating um, dive into the various components of the Fed's balance sheet with you, Andy. Uh, this has been a really valuable conversation, but I have to... Uh, for myself and for the audience, ask you your outlook on rates and treasury yields, um, sorry, policy rates and treasury yields heading into 2024. Um, I, I know you trade risk as well. You can throw in, you can throw in that as well. But really what we're focused on is uh, maybe the demise of higher for longer in the last few weeks, uh, shifting to rate cuts in 2024. So, Give us your refreshed outlook heading into the new year. What are your thoughts? Sure. So just winding it back in July, I got very bearish on assets, bonds, and stocks and covered them on August on Halloween when I saw data on the issuance that was going to be supportive of assets. Unfortunately, a few a month later, I started getting short. And so I'm getting squeezed a little bit here. Um, so now let's just look at the outlook. So, what we have is a very simple case in which the market has um, taken and extrapolated inflation um, falling to it returning to target faster than the Fed has planned. Yet, at the same time, when looking at credit and risk assets, uh, that will occur without a recession. And so it's possible. I mean, that is the, the Fed is all in on trying to get a soft landing, as they should be. That's literally the best outcome for them. Why wouldn't they shoot for it? Um, the Treasury may be influencing their own policy based on um, the desire to get reelected, which could be more, um, you know, letting oil fall, for instance, instead of rebuilding the SPR, but possibly also tweaking their issuance. Um, to be supportive of asset markets. All these things could be happening and we could be heading to a soft landing. And I think that would be great for America and great for the world. Uh, unfortunately, it's fully priced. And so I continue to see, like, I've always been a coin flip, though I'm pretty famous for being higher for longer. And that's been a good call. Mostly I've been a coin flip saying, I don't know, we're either going to have a recession because that's what it'll take to kill inflation or we're not going to kill inflation and it's going to be higher for longer. But a soft landing is is not my thing. As much as I would like it to happen, I think it's just very unlikely. And so that's pretty much my view. And that remains my view, uh, which is, I think, the way that that unless we have a soft landing, the way that inflation is is well and truly killed is through a path that ultimately ends in a recession. Um, and as far as I can tell, we're very far away from a recession. So that tells me, okay, what's going to happen? And now let's talk about the rates market. 
As I said, 160 basis points of cuts priced into 2024, 60-ish uh, priced into 2025. That takes the terminal rate down to three-ish. Um, and that to me is what, and that's actually already now in the market. That's literally where financing is happening within the private sector. Um, mortgages have fallen from 8% to below 7%. That's already occurring in the private sector. Asset prices have, um, you know, I caught the bottom on asset prices, but now they're spiking even further than I expected. Um, I consider that stimulative for um, in, uh, individual pocketbooks, allowing companies that to finance cheaper, allowing mortgagees to finance cheaper, um, and allowing those with assets to be more comfortable spending on goods and services. While employment is still um, uh, tight and forces of deglobalization continue to spend money for, in, a, in my view in an inflationary way and those don't seem to be being offset by some kumbaya global globalization trend re recurring and so uh, who knows you know could inflation drop below target yeah it's possible I mean, sure. And I, I, my confidence that it's going to bounce, I think it's going to bounce because of this easing of financial conditions. Um, and that we'll have another wave of inflation that'll have to be dealt with. Um, and the 160 basis points of cuts priced in is, which is 90 basis points higher than the Fed said, 85 basis points higher than the Fed said, is going to come out of the market. That's my short-term view. Um, and that'll in in impact the long end of the curve. Um, but who knows? Maybe inflation is really well and truly killed. Um, and that's great. Um, now the question is, what's priced in? And every asset I see is priced in at their best case. Equities are priced for high real nominal GDP to support high earnings growth while interest rates remain low and the Fed pivots. Those two things don't, those two things are inconsistent with each other, but that's where equities are priced. The front end is priced with 160 basis points of cuts. Inflation expectations are at target across most of the curve. Um, and nominal bonds are trade, long-term nominal bonds are trading with a substantial negative risk premium that's not quite as bad as it was this summer, but pretty bad. And so I don't consider assets to be very attractive. Now that said, there's a lot of stuff going on in markets that could cause some form of further rallying on FOMO and all manner of expectations changes. And so I'm looking for you know any sort of bounce on inflation to pound out assets and get short again. Andy Constant, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. We value your fixed income Treasury Fed expertise, and we look forward to having you back in 2024. Have a happy holiday and a happy new year. You too, Nick. Pleasure. All right, Andy. Thanks a lot. The Bitcoin Layer is very proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today for a special offer at river.com slash TBL for up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free. River is a Bitcoin only exchange and we want you guys to make sure you are getting allocated 
in the safest way possible. Go check them out today.